0: I remember I was thinking when we were watching that presentation just now, I was remembering uh, the first time that I watched it. And my wife and I became a part of this community about 2013 and we had been believers for a few years before that. And we knew that we had a lot to learn, but uh, we thought we had some idea what the gospel was at least. And I just remember sitting there amazed afterwards at just how much bigger the gospel was than what I had thought. And if, we're, if we agree that Jesus has commissioned all of us as believers to preach the gospel, then how important is it that we really see the fullness of what that gospel is, amen? Most of what I, and that's what we've titled this, is what happened to the gospel. Most of what I'll be uh, covering it comes from a book that we have available in the back there. It was written by our community's founder. It's called Evangelism: The Good, the Bad, and the Abominable. And I, I can't look at the cover of that book without being reminded of a an encounter that I had at the Thanksgiving, one of our Thanksgiving fairs a few years back. I was in the bookstore. And standing behind the book table and a man walked in and his eyes just immediately went to the table where that book was sitting and this look of disgust came over his face and he said, "Uh, now I want you to tell me what's so abominable about evangelism. And I, I took a step back and I considered whether I ought to introduce myself to him before we get into it. Uh, But as I was kind of getting my bearings about me, he continued. And he said, uh, you know, don't get me wrong. I think it's great what you guys are doing here. You know, I I think that, you know, to to live in a, a nice, quaint Christian community and you know, farm with horses and grow your own food and make your own furniture and be surrounded by people that believe exactly the way you do. I mean, that seems wonderful, and maybe when I retire that's that's what I'll do you know but he said, uh, for the time being, I just feel an obligation to obey Jesus when he said to go out into the world and preach the gospel and i uh The first thing that I was inclined to do is to point out that the first word used to describe evangelism on the front of the book was good. So we weren't saying that it was abominable Uh, and that we absolutely agree that uh, the fulfilling of the Great Commission, uh, the the going out into the world and preaching the gospel is central to the purpose of God. Uh, But I think that we have to ask the question. Uh, especially in light of some of the statistics that have already been shown, and and I'd like to share a few just to start here, but to ask the question, are all forms of evangelism equal? In the sense of, are they equally effective, and do they produce an equal amount of fruit? And I think that's the question I'd like to ask to kind of frame this discussion. Um... I'm not going to share a lot of statistics, I've just got a few here. I think what's been shared already is is more than sufficient to kind of paint the picture. But there there have been a number of studies done about various forms of evangelism and and the effectiveness of them. One of them, uh, there was a fairly recent crusade that recorded 600 decisions for Christ. Now, they went back three months later and followed up with these people who had made these decisions and asked them if they had continued on in the faith in any, in any regard. Um, have, they, have they become a part of a local church? Have they taken any steps uh, since their conversion? How many of the 600 do you think had? Zero. Uh, there was another... Event and up, the, up 35 here in Fort Worth that recorded 30,000 decisions for Christ. Of the 30,000, they went six months later and, and asked the same question. How many of those do you think continued on in any sense? It was one in 1,000. 30 people out of the 30,000 acknowledged having taken some step beyond their initial conversion. Uh, Omaha, Nebraska, 1,300 decisions for Christ. Three months later they followed up, zero had continued in any sense in the faith. Uh, Church Growth Magazine boasted of 18,000 decisions for Christ, but even they had to acknowledge that only 6% of those were ever incorporated into a local body of believers of any kind. And so you may think that I'm picking and choosing extreme scenarios to try and make a point, but these numbers are actually not at all inconsistent uh, with the evangelical uh, world. The fall away rate that's reported by evangelicals is between 85 and 97% after the point of conversion. And what happens to these people once they've converted? all we can be left to assume is that they become reabsorbed back into the culture that they came from. And they may have a label uh, now that says Christian, but they're applying that label to all the same perspectives, the same values, the same mindsets and ways of life that they were living before. Amen. And what about those who do continue on in the faith what about those who do remain in church for any period of time there was a a recent poll of church going christians these are people who acknowledge these aren't fringe these are mainline christian uh, people who attend mainline christian churches i'm going to ask you to help me with this one Um, they asked in a poll how many of them believed that pornography was morally acceptable? I'd like just some, some guesses as to, for those who are not familiar with this study, what percentage of church-going Christians do you think acknowledged in this poll that pornography was morally acceptable? How, 45, how many? Everybody I've heard so far is is too low. The actual number, and this this isn't a few Christians they asked, this is thousands. The number is 72%. And if you think that's bad, I'll share one more with you. Uh, They asked 6,000 active pastors of mainline Christian denominations how many of them in the last 30 days had themselves viewed internet pornography. This was an anonymous poll. Eight, 1,800 of 6,000 pastors, that's 30%, acknowledged pastors that they had viewed internet pornography in the last 30 days. So with, with that uh, as, a, as a frame, I think we'd like to dig into what what has happened to the gospel. Um, I don't think I can say it better than the the president of one of the largest theological seminaries, uh, Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, R. Albert Moeller Jr., wrote an article called The End of Christian America. And he said that the most basic contours of American culture have been radically altered. The so-called Judeo-Christian consensus of the last millennium has given way to a postmodern, post-Christian, post-Western cultural crisis which threatens the very heart of our culture. Clearly, there is a new narrative, a post-Christian narrative that is animating large portions of the society. This narrative is radically different It offers spirituality, however defined, even defined as Christian, but without binding authority. And he saw the time we're living in as an important transitional step towards a world that has turned away from the God of the Bible. And I think we're gonna talk a lot this week about all the ways that that may have happened, but I'd like to talk about one, When did this transition take place? What were the conditions that led to this cultural tsunami that has taken place? If we talk about a counterculture, if you look up counterculture uh, on the Internet, almost everything that will come up will make some reference to the counterculture of the 1960s in this country. It was a time when there were unprecedented shifts from long-standing values, uh, social norms. They viewed the, the hippie culture and the drug culture of the 60s as being a rejection of the prior generation's values. But the, the interesting question there is, why the 1960s? I mean, has, have children have been rebelling against their parents since, uh, if we would believe Moses, since the beginning of human history. And so what was it that was unique about that generation that resulted in such a cataclysmic cultural shift? And there have been many people, uh, particularly recently, historians, sociologists, who have said that what we saw break through the surface in the 1960s in the counterculture was actually a dynamic that had been boiling and rolling underneath the surface for at least a decade earlier and even longer than that. Uh, The United States found itself in a a unique situation right after World War II. Uh, Most of Europe had been completely decimated. Uh, Japan, many of the other countries who would have competed on a a production scale, uh, had been completely decimated by the war. And so American politicians and economists saw uh, a small window of opportunity to become the undisputed global market leader through uh, enhanced production, taking advantage of this window of time. It's gonna seem like I'm taking a huge diversion from the topic of evangelism, but if you bear with me, we're gonna get, get back around, okay? Uh, the, the problem with that is that prior to World War II, excessive spending on oneself was something that was considered morally wrong. It was considered to be selfish indulgence. And so the mindset of an entire culture would somehow have to be shifted towards a consumer mindset if this change was to occur, amen? And that shift would be the responsibility of a a new kind of psychologist. Uh, One of those was a man by the name of Ernest Dichter, and he was a man that was born in in Austria. Uh, He was a Freudian-trained psychoanalyst. And he and his counterparts were charged by the corporations they represented, and I'm gonna gonna quote here, to employ a, a conscious and concerted effort to overcome repressed desires and encourage enjoyment and consumption on a mass scale. And so we we can see even the trickery of the language here that something that had been a a moral virtue for hundreds of years is suddenly being defined as repression. And so their responsibility was to to shift that mindset. Uh, In their view, puritanical resistance to enjoyment and indulgence threatened the health of the free enterprise system. And who would want to do that? So this this, uh, resistance to this kind of wanton spending on oneself, in other words, was harmful to this free enterprise system. Dichter said that one of the basic problems of prosperity is to demonstrate that the hedonistic approach to life is moral and not immoral. Hedonistic meaning that the pursuit of pleasure is the greatest pursuit. That that wasn't an immoral standpoint, that that was actually moral. Uh, Hardworking, decently paid workers should be taught that it's good and not bad to go into debt to buy consumer goods. Dichter became the mastermind of what was called a corporate philosophy of hedonism, instilling this hedonistic tendency and perspective in an entire culture of people. Uh, One of Ernest Dichter's biggest influences was another man that was born in Austria. Uh, He was actually Sigmund Freud's double nephew and his name was Edward Bernays. Uh, Bernays is considered to be the father of modern advertising. Uh, You can't encounter an advertisement even today that wasn't influenced by Bernays and some of the methods that he uh, developed. He started off in uh, political propaganda. He was part of a committee that during the time of World War I was charged with drumming up uh, American public support for intervention in the war. And so it was through uh, various advertising campaigns and sloganeering, this this committee he was a part of came up with the slogan, make the world safe for democracy. And it was through this kind of sloganeering that suddenly overnight, uh, large amounts of the American population were in favor of of, uh, US intervention in the war. But then after the war, he shifted to more uh, corporate type advertising I'm going to read you uh, a, a, a quote that this is from, I believe, 1929. It's the, he begins his book called Propaganda with this quote. And it'll make your blood boil, I think, and your spine tingle if you, if you really take in what he's saying here. He says that the conscious and intelligent manipulation of the organized habits and opinions of the masses is an important element in democratic society. That's quite a statement, isn't it? What is a democratic society? Presumably it's a government for the people by the people. And so he's saying in in a society that seems to be a democracy, what's most important is somehow finding a way to manipulate the opinions and perspectives of those that form that democracy. He goes on and says, those who manipulate this unseen mechanism of society constitute an invisible government which is the true ruling power in this country. Not the one that is elected, but the one that is forming the opinions of those that are electing. Uh, And this applies to far more than just politics, as we'll see. We are governed, our minds molded, our tastes formed, and our ideas suggested, Largely by men we've never heard of, it is they who pull the wires that control the public mind. And so it was this, this through this form of manipulation that he and those that came after him were to, to shape the minds of the American public and, and really the world into this kind of consumer mindset. There was a couple of advertising campaigns that I think will help illustrate uh, how effective this was. Lucky Strike cigarettes had a, a problem in the 1920s. Uh, they had a couple of problems. Uh, the first one was that they were only tapping in to about 50% of their potential customer base. And that was because during that time it was taboo for women to smoke cigarettes. And so they had to find a way to get the other half of the, the population to get on board with smoking cigarettes. And so they asked Edward Bernays to see what he could do about changing this. And uh, what he did was he took some uh, women that worked with him and and various other high society uh, type women, and he uh, staged them. He had them attend the New New Year's, the New York Day, New York City Easter. Sorry. the New York City Easter Parade in 1929. uh, And all at one time on cue, he asked them to pull out a cigarette and light it. And he made sure that the press was alerted that this was going to happen so they'd be ready for this historic moment in history. And the way it was all positioned is through a form of women's liberation. So there's been this repression for all these years but finally women are gonna have the freedom to smoke cigarettes just like the men. And so this is how it was billed. And sure enough, on cue, they all fire up their cigarettes. The press is there snapping their pictures and in the headlines the next day, torches of freedom. So half the population now feeling completely liberated from the repression of, of not smoking cigarettes has now been entirely manipulated into, into uh, fulfilling the, the sales quota of Lucky Strike cigarettes. And sure enough, in a very short time, uh, both women and, and men were, were smoking cigarettes on a regular basis. Um, after that, and this is a little bit more humorous, but in, in a terrifying way, uh, they said, well, we've got this other problem. We have all this green packaging that we've purchased for our cigarette packs, and women don't like the color green. And Bernays' most logical suggestion was, well, why don't you pick a different color uh, of cigarettes? And they said, we've already got too much invested in the color green, we need to figure some other way to do this. And so he, he was up to the task, and he got all kinds of, again, high society women, uh, fashion designers, Uh, Fifth Fifth Avenue storefronts and so forth and none of this was overt it was all through people he knew and whatnot. and he told them green is is the new rage so you need to start making green clothing they had a, uh, a debutante ball they called the green ball and so everything became centered around this the color green and the next thing you know green was everywhere and Lucky Strike cigarettes were flying off the shelf So this gives us a picture of how easily the mindset of an entire culture can be manipulated. Uh, With the help of these types of guys, uh, what once was viewed as selfish gluttony uh, was transformed overnight into economic success and innovation and prosperity. And so what happened there in the 60s is that we had a generation of people who identified a certain kind of hypocrisy in their parents. Their parents were still adhering to some form of uh, Christian, Judeo-Christian moral ethics, but they could see that there was something else entirely that was driving their parents. They had become consumed and seduced by a different kind of force and were now being moved by something that was altogether different than what was being preached on Sundays. And so recognizing this in their parents, they thought, why cloak it in a religious veneer? Why not just throw off all restraints? And so the pursuit of the American dream ultimately gave birth to the counterculture of the 60s and a culture of total release. So where did the church find itself situated in the midst of all of this? Uh, Pretty soon it realized that the church had become another commodity competing on the open market. We had a different kind of mindset uh, driving the American people. And so uh, suddenly you had pastors who were having to, to bill their sermons after common uh, advertising slogans you know cigarette ads and soft drink ads would say things like they satisfy or God the real thing I saw uh, one fairly recently and it was just a, a picture of what was presumably it was inferred that it was Jesus from the waist down and he was wearing a pair of designer sneakers And the only thing on the ad was at the very bottom there was the name and the address of a church. And then at the in the middle it said, the original hipster. So what kind of message is that sending? If if you think you're too hip for church, we've got good news for you. We've we've completely recreated not just the gospel but our Lord and Savior into the image of modern culture. And, uh, you know, if people were in the mood for a bargain, then let's give them a bargain. And so, even the messages that were ministered were, had to be catered towards this new mindset and this new perspective that hedonism was a moral good. Amen? You, it reminds you of Paul's admonition to Timothy when he said that the days are coming when men are no longer going to endure sound doctrine, that with itching ears they're going to heap up to themselves for themselves teachers, amen, according to their own desires, and they're going to turn away from the truth. Something in their minds are going to turn them away from the truths of God. But he admonishes Timothy. Preach the word of God, amen, with endurance and with restraint, doing the work of an evangelist and fulfilling your ministry. And mass marketing, by definition, is all about the quick sell. But didn't Paul say that uh, in the end, it's not going to be the quantity of a man's work that God will test, but the quality of his work? Uh, some of these tactics do tend to produce conversions that spring up quickly when we apply them to evangelism. But Jesus said that when the soil is too shallow, the sun comes up, that, that light that, that determines, amen, that reveals whether or not something has been done in God. When that sun comes up, that that plant becomes scorched and withered, amen, because it wasn't able to take root. And there were many that recognized this. There were many that said, we can't can't go this direction. There's there's something very wrong with this. But at the same time, there were a number of people who felt like the church hadn't gone far enough in this direction. And uh, George Barna, who's been cited already today, He's the the head of the Barna Group, which is one of the leading research organizations dealing with faith and culture. He said the major problem plaguing the church today, I think we can all agree that there are problems plaguing the church, but in his estimation, the major problem plaguing the church today is its failure to embrace a marketing orientation in what has become a marketing-driven environment. And so the church's failure to follow in lockstep with the tactics and techniques of the world in reaching its customer base has been the failure of the church. Amen. But how do we reconcile that with Peter when he said that the day is coming when men with feigned words will make merchandise of God's people? These, these techniques and these, these methods, are they reaching the masses with the self, selfless message of the cross? Or are they appealing to the precise selfishness that stands in direct opposition to the cross? I mean, you think about when John the Baptist was proclaiming the coming of the kingdom and the gospel of the kingdom. He wasn't coming with enticing words for the flesh. His call was to a place to find a place of repentance. And that, that repentance wasn't going to be just an acknowledgment of our guilt before God, but he said go and bear fruits consistent with repentance. That's not a message that is enticing to the flesh. And even if we don't we, we I think all all almost all these uh, Pastors, churches, and so forth that have utilized these tactics, they may not feel like the products themselves are consistent with a Christian worldview, but we have to ask ourselves, uh, what about the methods? Are the methods consistent with a Christian worldview? Jesus said that in Matthew 7 that a good tree cannot bear bad fruit and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. And given some of the the quotes that I've read from some of the pioneers of this form of marketing, could the tree get any more rotten than that? I was reminded, Brother Rossi reminded me this week of a quote by a philosopher of media, Marshall McLuhan. He's, he's known for saying the medium is the message. And what he's saying there is the way something is communicated the approach that is taken, the the vehicle for that message has as much impact and as as significant in shaping the recipient of that message than the message itself. And when we think about that in light of all that we're talking about now, it it causes us to to really ask some serious questions. Uh, I've talked a lot about the bad Jesus said in Matthew 28, starting in verse 18, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe, and some translations say obey, All that I have commanded you. I think we can acknowledge that the going, therefore, the preaching of the gospel is absolutely central to this commission and to the faith. But as one commentator pointed out, the center of a circle is not the circumference of that circle. The boundaries, the circumference of that circle, is what provides the form and the context that is necessary for guiding and directing the center of that circle. And I think Jesus also makes it clear in this commission that what that circumference is, and it's discipleship. It's a context where people can be discipled. And what does discipleship require but an ongoing relationship? The making of disciples— And so he's commissioning us with something that's vast. We've just witnessed it. We've heard about it. How is it that we impart that? He says, you're going to have to enter in. You're going to have to make an investment. You're going to have to enter in to a lifelong relationship of discipleship. Amen. And without that investment, it just becomes so easy for the lost to become an abstraction. It just becomes kind of a faceless, nameless, amorphous, you know, and, and and our intentions can be great. But without that investment, without that relationship of discipleship, it can become an abstraction. And I want to start to wrap up with a couple of examples uh, here of two different forms of evangelism uh, to try and illustrate that point. Do you guys know who Billy Sunday is? Most people have, he's the most uh, influential, well-known, I think, American evangelist of our time. Uh, he was known for preaching fiery sermons, uh, for, for uh, energizing huge crowds of tens of thousands. I believe that he preached to over 100 million people in his lifetime. He frequently made front-page news. Um, I think over a million people Came forth at his invitations and 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 made decisions for Christ. Uh, I think he preached something along the lines of twenty thousand sermons in his lifetime, and during his heyday, up to forty-two sermons in a uh, in a month. Uh, but even his most sympathetic biographers will acknowledge that at most five percent of those that came forth and made those decisions actually continued on in the faith in, in any regard. I want to read an excerpt to you of something that actually Brother Dan shared with me recently. He had done some some uh, research on Billy Sunday, and he, he put something together, and I'm going to read a little excerpt from it, but I think it would give us a, a, a picture of the consequences uh, by looking at, at Billy Sunday's natural family and, 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 and the illustration that, that would serve, it says that the long term fruit in Billy Sunday's natural family reveals remarkable parallels to the spiritual fruit of his evangelistic techniques. His four children were mostly raised by a hired nanny so that his wife could accompany him on the evangelistic trail. His sons became known for committing the very sins that he preached against practically every night. Billy Jr. was drinking, dancing, committing adultery, and sometimes landing in jail, all the while playing piano on his father's evangelistic team. In his heyday, Billy Sunday would often collect as much money in one day as the average American made in an entire year. But by the end of his life, Almost his entire fortune had been spent paying off the lawyers who sued his sons, helping to support his destitute grandchildren, and paying blackmail to several women to keep his son's escapades quiet. His only daughter died at age 43. All three of his sons died violent deaths. George committed suicide by jumping from an apartment window. Billy Jr. was killed in a car crash after a night of partying. Paul died in an airplane crash. Sunday's four children contracted nine marriages altogether, but produced only three grandchildren. The three grandchildren, in turn, had five marriages, but produced only one great-grandchild, Marquise Ashley Sunday. Marquise died childless, murdered by his own lover in 1982. And so it was that 50 years after his death, Billy Sunday had no living descendants. Again, paralleling the results of his spiritual descendants, it was hardly indicative of the fruit that remains that Jesus said his chosen disciples were appointed to bear. And I don't share that to disparage anyone. I don't share that even to pass judgment. But we have to ask is God trying to give us a picture here? And you you think about all these people who went forth all these people who went to these crusades and so forth and, and how many hungry hearts that there really had to be. I mean, how many people came and said, maybe this is the answer to the problem Amen. that I know that I've got. You know, and they come, and they and they have this exhilarating experience where perhaps God has even moved. And yet, on the other side of it, you know, they think, "Well, seems like maybe I'm going to heaven when I die." I, but what about this pain that I brought here with me? Amen. What about this bitterness that I know that I've got? What about this selfish pride? that has been directing my life? What about my family that I feel like I'm on the verge of destroying? You know, they came looking for a real change and hoping that God would bring that change. And yet there was no context to continue on in that circumference, as we talked about, that, that context of discipleship that could have brought about real change. And so your fear is that many of them were just inoculated. Amen. Many of them simply went on thinking, well, I thought God might've been the answer but I guess I'll have to look somewhere else, you know? And that's, that's the tragedy, I think, of all of this. Uh, but I think about that in contrast to one who uh, was chronicled probably most extensively as having obeyed Jesus's great commission. Uh, the apostle Paul, it makes clear in the book of Acts and in his own ep- epistles, He sought those effective doors that the Spirit of God opened to him. It's hard to find a single prayer of Paul's for the lost. But he told the Colossians, he asked the Colossians, pray for us that God may open a door for our message, that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ. Amen. And in Acts 16, The Holy Spirit, it says, kept Paul and his companions from preaching the word in the province of Asia. And then right after that, we see the Lord supernaturally directing Paul through a vision to go to Macedonia. He walked only through the specific doors that God opened for him. He took it seriously when Jesus started his great commission by saying, All authority has been given to me. And so, therefore, go. And so he subjected that call to the leading of God and asked God to open the doors that you would have me to walk through, the specific doors. And we see that even in Luke chapter 4, where Jesus has just begun his ministry. He's just announced and proclaimed his evangelistic purpose of preaching the gospel. And he turns to those listening, and he says something that I think if we heard this perhaps in a a more modern context, spoken by somebody else, it could come across quite offensive. But what he says is, surely you'll quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. Do here in your hometown what we've heard you did at Capernaum. And Jesus explains that he can only perform works that the spirit has sent him to perform he says I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time and yet Elijah was not sent to any of them but to a widow in Zarephath and there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet and yet not one of them was cleansed except for Naaman the Syrian What he was saying is, the question isn't in my ability to minister this word, to preach the gospel, so forth. The question is, is the soil pliable? is the soil soft enough? Amen. Is it deep enough? Has God opened a door here for this to go forth? You know, Elijah didn't uh, go knocking on doors, handing out tracts. Uh, holding a series of revivals for widows uh, in, in the region. But he went in God's power to the one that he sent him to. Amen. Elisha didn't put up a sign for a miracle healing revival for all the lepers in Israel, but he healed the one that God sent to him. God looks on every human heart it can tell the precise time for the planting for the watering and for the harvesting of the seed of God's word amen and it's not just the planting of the seed that brings god glory jesus says in john 15 that this is to my father's glory that you bear much fruit showing yourselves to be my disciples. Amen. And so the fulfilling of the Great Commission cannot bring glory to God if those disciple if we if, if we're not shown to be his disciples, which comes through a consistent and ongoing bearing of fruit, which requires that relationship that can bring that to pass. There was a, I'm almost through here. There was a, a major denomination that performed a study on the results of various methods of evangelistic outreach. And it showed that churches who approached evangelism not as a witness of a whole life, which is a witness that treats the other person as a person and not as an object to be manipulated. This is the quote from the actual study. Uh, But rather only rely on an evangelism of selling or marketing or merely passing on verbal information to the lost, had by far the lowest rate of conversions among all ways that were studied. And even more revealing is that the study showed that three quarters of all dropouts, people who seemed to have been converted but did not continue on in the faith, came from these same methods of marketing style evangelism. And it finally showed that only when the witness of the whole church involves a whole life did sustained growth, not just in quantity, but in quality, occur. Amen. And we're not saying that, that God wouldn't uh, prompt us to preach to masses. It's not, it's not about the numbers amen but as jesus said in his commission amen all authority has been given to him and so we have to ask the question amen has god opened a door here has god made of a, an effective way is this where god has sent me to proclaim this message and then even more importantly than that what is the message that is being proclaimed amen We see accounts all through the Gospels of Jesus ministering to large numbers of people. We see it in the book of Acts. 3,000 added. We see huge numbers referenced there. But when we think about those examples, what was the Gospel that Peter was preaching when those 3,000 were added to the church? This is a man who just a short time earlier was cowering in fear of the religious leaders who were crucifying Jesus. And yet, he bound together and obeyed Jesus' command to go and tarry in Jerusalem until a power came from on high. Amen. And when that power came, it was so transforming that this same man that was cowering when Jesus was being crucified turned around in the authority of God and brought a rebuke to those same leaders and said, the God of the universe has manifested himself, has come to this earth, and you crucified him. Amen. That's not a message that the flesh wants to hear. And yet the conviction was so strong that 3,000 were added. And in almost every instance you see throughout the book of Acts, where a great number were added, many were added, Acts 2, Acts 4, uh, 5, Acts 11. Almost in every instance, it follows right on the heels of a demonstration and expression of the unity of God's people. They were of one accord of gathered together. They saw them breaking bread with one another. This, this expression of unity is then prompted Amen. This, this, con, this, this, this circumference, this context of discipleship and unity and oneness as a body was demonstrated, and then a great many were added. And as if Jesus was anticipating this perspective, amen, on, on the gospel, in almost every one of those situations, you'll see some reference to an admonishment to continue in the faith. Amen. What you've received, what has started here today. Amen. Make sure that it continues on into the future. It must go on. And so there were thousands added. Amen. But they were added at a time. They were baptized into the name of a man who a short time earlier was hanging from a cross. Amen. This was not an appealing message to the flesh. And yet the conviction was so strong that a church... Was brought to birth, amen, through this, this form of evangelism. And Jesus himself, when he was praying in John 17, you know, God, you know, this is how they're gonna know. This is how they're gonna believe that you sent me. Amen. This is how they're gonna know. This is, this is how they're gonna see it. Amen. It's not going to be through the fiery charisma of the preacher, amen. It's not going to be through the marketing, the superior marketing techniques of the evangelism, amen. It's going to be their love and their unity for one another that's going to convince them, amen, that's gonna bring them to that place of belief, that's gonna bring them to that place of repentance, amen. When they they don't just see the circle, the, 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 the center, They see the entire circle. They see a body of believers who have been fitly framed together, amen, growing up into the full stature of the measure of Christ, growing, amen, through what every joint, every connection in that body supplies, amen. They'll become like that mountain that's prophesied in Isaiah that they will all flock to in the end, amen, that city that's set upon a hill amen and when we become that amen When we become that city amen then this great commission amen as it was intended uh can be fulfilled amen and it's in the process of becoming that that it becomes fulfilled